Hi there, you're listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. TCC, a home for you. Trinity Community Church, uh, well done. Uh, We yesterday took an opportunity to love our community extravagantly. Uh, I'll tell you what, um, I know sometimes we don't think this and it's tough for us to do sometimes, but love, the power of God, the love of God always wins. Always. We always lead with love. That makes us unique. Uh, unique. That makes us different. Um, Jenna, uh, who puts on, you know, she's a, the tip of the spear for the event. She's six. We don't have all of our final, final numbers in yet, but I can tell you this. Uh, between both campuses here in our Wilmington campus with New City, I know we had, a, I think, 3,400 pre-registrations. Um, I'm guessing yesterday we had thousands here. Lots of, that's a lot. Hello? Uh, New City, I think, had 130 registrations, but they had between three and 500 people, something like that, uh, which is gr- uh, which is amazing. So uh, we had, you know, a lot of people here, a lot of hot dogs, a lot of cotton candy, a lot of popcorn, but more important, a lot of Jesus. Amen. Hello. Uh, remarkable stories. I, I was praying. This is a little secret thing for me. I was praying. I was like, Lord, yesterday I was I was walking. I got my foot's bad, and I'm, I'm walking here early in the morning with the elders. We we pray over all the events the elders do in the morning. I'm walking, I'm like, Lord, does the community even know we're doing this? Is it really making an impact in the community? I'm like, and if God, if it is, I want somebody to tell me that, dang it. So I'm in a golf cart driving people up back and forth to the parking of the grass, try to stay off my foot, and this, this couple and their four kids get into the golf cart, and the dude's just beaming, man. His eyes are big, and he goes, man, he said, you know, this thing is incredible. He says, do you go to this church? I go, yeah. <laughs> he says, how long have you been coming? I said, about four years. Here's man, he looked at me, he says, I'll tell you what, he, these are exact words. Our community is better because of this church. That's what he told me. So then he told me this, he goes, can you let people know who did this, like the big people about that I said that? I said, I'll get it to where it needs to go. <laughs> well done. So many different encounters, so many opportunities to show God's love, power, and his presence. Um, again, we don't, it's not about candy, it's not about hot dogs, it's about practical love, and you guys knocked it out of the park. So I want to encourage you. We continue now to pray for the seeds that God planted. The Bible tells us this, says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's not a harvest issue. It's a worker issue. That's us. So we continue to pray. We continue to bring the sickle. We continue to go out there, and we proclaim Jesus. That's just what we do. Um, so well done, beloved. Well done. So now we take a quick breath, and then we head on to Christmas, because this is a time, it's a time of harvest, it is. So I was uh, walking around yesterday, and I'm looking at, uh, you know, isn't it funny how little things, a scent, a uh, smell, a look kind of takes you back to like years ago? I'm looking at these kids' costumes, and it looks like, you know, they came right out of like, you know, like, like Hollywood. You know what I'm talking about? How many remember what costumes looked like in the 60s and 70s? They were plastic, probably made with asbestos. You know what I'm talking about? Eye slits. I remember having a mask and sit on you like this. You're sweating all day at your school, and then you go for the candy parade, you know, at the end of the day. I remember as an eight-year-old, honest to goodness. So we would go to different family things for different, uh, you know, trick-or-treating experiences. Even that's different now. I remember as a kid, you'd grab a, you know, your, 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 your pillow sack, and you'd go door-to-door. Man, you know, candy wasn't like, you know, get you like a fun size. There's no fun size. You had full size. You had big things. And then, the, you know, the houses we didn't like, they'd give you like, you know, an apple. <laughs> an apple. I don't want that, right? But I remember one year I went to my, uh, I was probably about eight years old. I went to my cousin Mike and Ernie's house. 
And uh, these guys, they're about, oh, about seven, eight years older than me. So, you know, as a little kid, you like worship these older cousins. I'm not making this up, and I don't want to be crashing. I'm just going to tell you what happened. They had the greatest costume I've ever seen in my life. They went for, for, for Halloween, ready for this, as a butt. <laughs> Mike was the right cheek. Ernie was the left cheek. They'd walk down. I'm not going to tell you where they put the candy. I'm just going to tell you what happened. And I remember it was paper mache. They spent all year doing it. It was the greatest thing ever. I remember going, Mom, I want to, can I dress like a bunch? She said, no, don't even think about it. Put on your asbestos mask and just get out there, you know. <laughs> don't even think about it. But I started yesterday, all the smells, of I started to kind of go down memory lane. And you start to think of all the different holidays you spend with people. And then um, I don't know why. I just started to think about uh, some Christmas times. And um, I don't know what your tradition had. But in my tradition, you know, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, we had family. And then you also had, you know, family that you'd bring in. We had godparents. How many of you grew up with godparents? So in the Greek Orthodox Church, you have godparents. And I'm not making this. You go there for the baptism. And they baptize you, they christen you in the Greek Orthodox Church with water and, and oil. You know, oh, you need a little bit of garlic in there, and then you, you, you got something started there, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I remember my godparents, my Uncle, my uncle George, my Aunt Chris, and, um, you know, as I was thinking back of, 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 of the season and stuff like that, and, you know, you can't look at Halloween without being faced with eternity. You know, all the decorations and stuff now, you got these, these 92-foot-tall skeletons, I don't even know how you get those things up. What, how big is the box that you buy to get that thing? You know what I mean? But you start to think of things like death. And I, for me, losing my Uncle George when I was a kid, I think was my first encounter with, um, with death, especially with somebody close. And I'll be honest with you, it wrecked me. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I didn't know how to process his death. And I remember sitting there, and, 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 and when my Uncle George died, he was this larger-than-life figure, this big Greek guy with his black hair. He had coal black hair to the day that he died. He worked at J&L Steel Mill, so he was a tough dude. He had rough hands. He didn't have soft hands. He was just this mountain of a guy. He was a Boy Scout guy. My cousins were all Eagle Scouts because that's just what you did. He was a man of the outdoors, and I just... Man, I just loved this guy, man. He was just so cool. They'd send me out there for a couple months every year in the summer. I didn't realize my parents were just trying to get rid of me. I thought it was just time to spend with my godparents. And he was, a, he was a sea captain. He'd go out there. He was a captain on Lake Erie and, and it did all these great things. And, and when he died, it was like my world came down. And I remember, you know, people would sit there and I'd listen as a kid on, you know, what happened to Uncle George next. And I remember, you know, one of them said, you know, well, Uncle George, he's an angel now. I knew my Uncle George, I loved him a lot, and there was a lot of things that really inspired, about, you know, inspired me about my Uncle George, but angel is not one word I would use to describe Uncle George. He's a pretty rough, uh, colorful Greek guy. And I remember uh, another person said, you know, well, he's finally at rest. What does that mean? Is he asleep? Yeah, one of them said, well, you know, he's with all the other Greeks in heaven. I'm thinking to myself, dear Lord, I don't know, the Greeks here on earth are pretty wild. What are they, what are they like in heaven? God must be like, here's a special section for the Greeks that's soundproof. You guys just go over there. Stay away from me, right? And then when we were at the funeral, it was crazy. If you've ever been to an Orthodox funeral, um, most of it was in Greek. But the priest broke into English to talk a little specifically about my Uncle George. And, and he said something that got me thinking. This is years ago. At the funeral, he said, uh, he said that during one of his last visits with Michael George... He looked at him, and he said, George, do you know Jesus? Now, his priest was Father George, so from George to George, he said, George, do you know Jesus? And he told us right then and there, Michael George was like, I, I don't know. 
And right then and there, the priest said, I introduced him personally to Jesus Christ. And I could tell you right now that George is in heaven with God and he'll be there forever. Now, what was crazy to me was this. Father George didn't make it about the church. He made it about Jesus. Now, sometimes when it comes to our faith and death and stuff like that, it's all about the church, right? Well, I'm Catholic. I'm Orthodox. I'm Baptist. I'm this and that. And we think our our religious affiliation is what gets us in. But Father George didn't say that. He said, really, what gets you in is your relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd never, never processed that before. It was incredible to me. In fact, that set the foundation for even today when I start to think about things like, do you know that it's your relationship with Jesus that gives you what you need to be able to face death? As believers, you don't need to be afraid of death. Do you know that? Death doesn't hold sway over us. Because of Jesus, we've conquered death. But let's just be real. I mean, we're all believers and we're Christians, or most of you are. But all of us are also human, right? So we deal with human things. I don't know how to tell you this. You're going to die. Do you know that? You're terminal. In fact, not only are you going to die, but unless the Lord comes back and, and he does something crazy, your children are going to die and their children are going to die. And you're ready for this? Even your cats are going to die. Hopefully quicker than the dogs, but they're, they're going to die. So this whole death thing is not something that's new. And even though it shocks us when we face it, is it really shocking? We know that the train is coming. In fact, it's been such a part of humanity, some of the smartest thinkers that humanity's ever seen have kind of weighed in on death. Mark Twain said this, the fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Have you ever thought that maybe people are afraid to die because they haven't fully lived? You know that living for us is more than sucking air and getting a paycheck every week. That's not life, that's survival. William Penn said this, for death is no more than the turning of us over from time to eternity. We struggle with the concept of eternity, so we, we don't know what eternity is. When you, you look at that Hebrew word for, for eternity, we, we, it's timeless. It's not necessarily a form of measurement. It's in a completely different place where time doesn't exist. We kind of process eternity as time that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, and that's not what eternity is at all. It's continually just getting sucked right off the timeline. You exist apart from time. That's what it is. Helen Keller said this. Death is no more than the passing from one room into another. But there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to see. Now, it's funny. I, talked, I used that quote in the first service, and somebody came up to me and said, well, what's the big deal? Why, why couldn't Helen Keller see? I said, because she's blind. And they go, what? How many of you are old enough to know that Helen Keller was blind? If it's not on the TikTok, some of these kids don't know that. Benjamin Franklin said this, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except for two things, death and taxes. That's true. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, no one really knows why they're alive until they know what they'll die for. Mother Teresa said this, death is nothing else but going home to God. The bond of love will be unbroken for all eternity. 
That's beautiful. And of course, you can't talk about death without talking about one of the greatest quotes of death ever. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. How many of you know that death is the doorway to heaven? It's hard to get there unless you die. But when you boil it down, let's just, death is unknown to us. And unfortunately for us as, as, as humans, we like to fill in the gaps for the things that we don't know. We've been doing it for years. That's why there's so many different opinions on what happens to us when we die. We like to make stuff up sometimes. My dad's greatest enemy, you know, as he got older, was Google. Because you know why? Google could fact check all the stuff that he would say. And we came to this realization when Google came out and when the, he lived with us with the kids, 80% of the stuff he said he just made up. But we didn't know. Because how many of you remember when you grew up and you just didn't know things? If it wasn't in the World Book Encyclopedia, we just didn't know. And we were okay with that. Well, when was he born? I don't know. Let's move on. Right? Um, so when it comes to unknown, you know, all of us walk through unknown phases. Death is unknown for us. I think one of the great joys of parenting is you get to walk with your kids as they move into new phases of life, which are all unknown. I'm getting ready to walk into another phase of life with my eldest son, Ty McKenna. Uh, she's uh, with child. They're going to have a baby in uh, January, be our first grandbaby. So parenting is unknown for them. Grandparenting is unknown for us. I've been told this. The great thing about grandparenting is you get to play with the children, sugar them up, send them home. Is that true? Okay. <clears throat> I figure I got that down. Um, I remember, uh, uh, especially with Toby when he was growing up, that there's, there's a few years between Toby and Tyler. Um, is he up there? And, and, and for the longest time, it was kind of funny. It's like Toby was small and then he was big. I don't know what happened. But for the longest time, Toby just wanted to be big. He wanted to grow. He wanted to be an adult. Now, you remember as a kid, all your kids want to be adults, and then they don't realize adulting is a trap. And we would do anything to be kids again, right? So I remember as they were growing up, he would go through these weird phases. We're walking through the house one day, and I look over, and Toby's doing this. I go, son, you know, you talk like a little kid, a sub-10-year-old. I go, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're hitting yourself in the head. Why are you hitting yourself in the face? He goes, well, I'm turning on my night vision. I said, you're what? He says, I'm turning on my night vision. He says, Dad, I'm, like, I'm almost 12. I think it was like 11. He's like, I'm almost 12. He goes, and it's time for my night vision to start working. I said, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, I've got to be able to see at night. I said, who told you about your night vision? He goes, well, Uncle Mark told me about my night vision. Now, he was a guy in the church. And, you know, he would always tell Toby things just to kind of continue to spur on his development as a young man. So I called Mark. I said, Mark. I said, did you talk to Toby about his night vision? He goes, yeah, as he hit himself in the head. I go, yeah, like all day. And I'm afraid those four brain cells are going to get mashed up a little bit. I said, what did you tell him? He said, well, I told him when you turn you know, 12, you know, you have the ability as a young man to see at night. He says, but the way you activate your night vision is you've got to hit the side of your head really hard and it'll pop right on. I said, thanks, Mark. So I did what any dad would do that loved his children more than anything, I let him hit himself in the face for another month <laughs> until, until we finally told him that boys don't possess nightmares. You might every once in a while, you see Toby out there and he'll, still, he'll go, just to make sure that we're just not crazy. We don't know what's on the other side, so sometimes we, we manufacture 
what we think is going to be part of our next steps. We do that even with death sometimes. So how can you and I face with confidence the unknown nature of death? The only way I know how to do this is to find something greater than death and to allow that to be our anchor, to allow that to be our source. So when you look at our source of truth, the word empowered by the Holy Spirit to guide us, we see all the solutions that we need to know what happens after we die. So here's the big question this morning we're going to answer. Is it possible for us as believers to face death and to not be afraid? Yes, it is, it is possible. In fact, not only is it possible, but as believers, it's expected for us to be able to stand up to death and to, 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 to tell everybody around us how the cross and how God has conquered death. Because for us now, death is not the end. It's the beginning of something incredible. But beloved, I can tell you this right now. If you don't believe it, then nobody around you in the world is going to believe it either. Kabish? So we got to get this. We got to wrestle this thing to the ground. So today I want to look at two things that you and I need to know about death so that when we face it, we won't be afraid. The first is this. Get this in your heart. The rule of death has been broken. That thing about death being the end is no more. Jesus came and he broke that. He conquered death for you and I. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to launch here today. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a powerful verse that encapsulates a lot for us when it comes to death. Romans 5.17 says this. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So we see in this, in this passage, Paul paints a picture for us. He contrasts two people, Adam, the original Adam, the one that, 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 that God created, the first man. And he says, because of his decisions, death entered our world. And he contrasts them with what Jesus did for us. And sometimes we forget through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the rule of death, the thing that entered with Adam, is broken now for us forever. He broke the seal of death. Now, here's the challenge. Why did death have rule over us in the first place? One word, sin. Now, it's funny. When you talk about sin, people don't know what to do. People get uncomfortable. People get weird. You know why people get weird and get uncomfortable about sin? Now, the Holy Spirit convicts us. You know, the enemy condemns you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. You know, for some times in church, we, we've reduced sin to a list of do's and don'ts. So what that means is sometimes we, we can, sin becomes a moving target. Are you with me? So what's a sin here isn't a sin there, and it's a sin here, but it's not a sin there. So what does it actually mean to sin? This is the definition of sin. When you look at the biblical definition, this is what it means. To miss the mark. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It means to miss the mark. And when it comes to sin, we know this. The end result of sin is simply one thing, death. Sin always leads to death. It does. Romans 3 or 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I think it's interesting that, that the language there in Romans is the wages of sin is death. Why is it a wage? Because sin will cost you something. Now, here's the unique thing about sin. 
Sin is not a personal problem. It's not just something that you and I deal with on a personal level. The enemy wants to make you think that only you deal with that little thing and nobody else does. The enemy wants you to get quiet. He wants you to hold that thing off all by yourself. If he can keep you off to your side all by yourself, he can control you, he can contain you, he can, he can just destroy you. How many of you remember, you see Animal Planet, you all know what happens when you got the little herd of deer out in the Serengeti, out in Africa, and the one little deer goes off, you know what's going to happen. You know, the lions are hanging out in the high grass, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for venison, that's what they're waiting for, Right? And they just take him out. The enemy does the same thing. But here's the insidiousness of, of, of sin. What the enemy does is, is he tries to make the church a place that isn't safe for people to share the things that they really struggle with. So what do we do when people say, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a problem with this. I need help. Do we run to their aid? Do we lift them up? Or do we look differently at them? This should be a place of grace, which means that you should be able to share anything. Amen. And God should be able to just, through us, bring restoration. Galatians is pretty clear about that. If you find somebody that struggles with sin, that's been torn down, reach down and help them up. And, and have the right attitude because you could be the next one in that ditch. Right? So to sin means to miss the mark. Now here's the challenge. Sin isn't just a personal problem. It's a universal problem. It's the problem for all mankind, which means this. As a human, we all miss the mark. You're not good enough to do this by yourself. If you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you could live righteously enough just in your own strength, Jesus wouldn't have had to come to die, but you can't. So he did come for us. All of us are in the same boat. Mother Teresa was there. The Pope was there. Even beyond them, Miss Angel was there. All of us, it's shocking, it is. Romans 3.23 says this, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So we're all in the same boat. We struggle, we need a Savior. How did we find ourselves to be in this position? Well, it all started for us in the garden. When God created Adam and Eve, do you know that they were created to live forever? There was no expiration date on them, like the milk in your refrigerator. They were created to live forever. I got a question about yogurt. No, we'll talk about that later. Right? So what happened? If you've got your Bibles, flip to Genesis chapter 2. A lot of you know the story of Adam and Eve, but you've never read the story with your own eyeballs in the Word of God. This is the story of Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So look with me in your mind's eye. In the middle of the garden, there was a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you look at Genesis 2.9, right there, you also had the tree of life. These trees were not normal trees. They had supernatural properties to them. So the tree of life produced fruit that yielded everlasting life whoever ate from it. The fruit was so potent that even after the fall, when God had to remove Adam and Eve from the garden, he had to place a cherub with a flaming sword there to keep them out of it because if they were to partake of that tree, they would never die. So he had to do that. Now the tree of knowledge was similar to the rest of the trees in the garden. Its fruit was pleasing to the sight. You know, it was good for food. But there was one catch. Eating from that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, 
was clearly forbidden. So here's the question. I'm a question asker. Are you a question asker? Why would God put a tree like that in the garden? Why would he do that? Well, why would he put a tree that was bad for them in the garden and then tell Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree? I mean, why, why even put the tree in there? Just leave the tree out, let them live in, in, in bliss for the rest of their lives. You know what he gave them? He gave them an incredible gift called free will. It was a choice, the gift of choice. Why did he have to give them choice? You ready for this? You can't have real love without a choice. You can't experience real love without the possibility of not loving at all. Real love comes with it a choice. When Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree, their disobedience, their choice to eat the tree brought with it a consequence. The consequence was death. All that came from a choice. Just like Jesus also made a choice. When he chose to come to our planet as a human, when he chose to live like us, breathe like us, walk like us, and die with us, for us, that was all a choice. And because of the choice he made, he brought with him life, not death. Love is a choice. John 13, 34 35 says this. This is Jesus' words to us. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will produce to the, or prove to the world that you're my disciples. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. God gave us the commandment to love each other. So that's what we do, right? We love each other. No strings attached. No problem. It's so easy, isn't it? You love that neighbor, that jerk, that messes with you every day, that same guy that's made in God's image. You love him too, don't you? You know that person that's on the opposite political party? Easy to love them, right? We had a great story yesterday. Somebody came up yesterday to one of our people and, and started chewing on them. And instead of that person chewing back, you know what they did? They loved them. And it brought this moment of reconciliation, hope, and, and, and healing. Because love wins. The power of God, the power of love wins. You know that, right? That's how it works. But love is a choice. Even though God tells us to do it, how many of you know that you have to partner with God to see that sucker happen? Our Bibles are loaded with commandments that sometimes we disregard. I would do anything for God except number six. My theology is different than that. That's what we do as humans. You know what we do? Anything we don't agree with, we just make a different theology. Right? Are you with me? So why would love be any different? Jesus said, love your enemies. It's easy for us to love people that look like us, smell like us, believe like us. Love is put to the test when God brings you people that don't look anything like you. They don't think anything like you. Anybody can love when it's easy. God didn't call us to do the easy things. He called us to do the tough things. Have you ever thought how ridiculous the gospel is? Have you ever thought about this? Do you know that, that Paul, when Paul died and was beheaded, and he got into heaven, those that cheered him on were some of the people that he persecuted. People that he helped to put to death were some of his biggest cheerleaders coming into, coming into heaven. Who does that? It's a different kingdom, beloved. It's totally different. Love. 
It's a choice. So God told Adam this. He said, listen, I'm going to put this tree in here. If you eat from this tree, you'll surely die. So Adam knew that obeying God was good and disobeying God was bad and it would bring with it consequences. So everything's humming along in the garden. Everything's great. Nobody's having any issues. So one day, Eve has an encounter with the serpent. If you've got your Bible, turn to, to, uh, to Genesis 3. It says this, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Isn't it funny how the enemy comes in? And he's never over the top. Most of the time he's kind of just covert. And one of his main tactics is this. He questions or puts doubt in your mind of what God told you. Has God or has the enemy ever put doubt in your mind of what God's told you? Maybe things like this. Oh, man, if people knew what you were really like, they wouldn't even go near you. Or are you, are you really, you're probably not really saved. Doubt is the tactic of the enemy, and he's been using it over us for thousands of years, and he's going, to, he's going to continue to use it. Why? It works. Doesn't it work? He gets us all turned around. Verse 2, of course you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat, God said. You must not eat it or even touch it. Or you will die. If you do, you will die. Verse 4. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now again, what does the enemy do? He loves to give you half-truths. Just to give you enough to make it smell and look like it might be real. Verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and then suddenly, uh, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, what's funny is this. I remember as a kid in, in, in Greek Orthodox Church, we had flannel graphs. How many remember the flannel graph? You think your computer's cool. It ain't nothing like a flannel graph. You get these cutouts, you stick them up on the flannel. And all the Adam and Eve things you've ever seen, those fig leaves were like the size of these chairs. I grow, I have two fig plants in my house. You know how big those fig leaves are? The size of my hand. That's some expert sewing to get some clothes out of those things. You know what I mean? So all these things, their innocence is taken away. Did you notice something? Did the serpent force Eve to take the fruit? Who took the fruit? Eve. What did he do? He simply twisted the truth. Lies and imitations. That's what he uses. Lies and imitations. The enemy is always twisting the truth. The enemy is always hiding from us the real intentions. He has these perceptions that he's way bigger, way more intense than he really is. In some people's minds, you think God and the devil are like on equal playing ground. And sometimes we have things like, you know, Christian you know, things where they're boxing, and it's like, who's going to win, this guy or this guy, this guy or this guy? It's not like that at all. It's like God's here, and the devil's way down there. But the enemy tries to inflate himself. He's an imitation. It's not real. We were, um, so this summer, we had an opportunity to go to, uh, with Convoy of Hope to Alaska. And we had, we, we had to wait a day. We were in uh, Seattle before the boat left. So we went out, and Robin and I were going to go out on the town in Seattle. We were going to have dinner. It was going to be great. Now, Seattle's a pretty uppity place, pretty nice, a lot of, lot of, you know, fusion things. And 
uh, Robin is not a fusion girl. For her, like, fusion of food would be like, instead of having, like, the grilled cheese on white bread, she'd have it on light tan bread. You know what I'm talking about? That's the fusion we're talking about. So we had dinner, and it wasn't that great, and she was kind of de depressed. And I noticed as we were walking, there was, like, a custard place. How many of you know that ice cream always brings joy? <laughs> Unless you're Bill and you're lactose intolerant, that nobody feels joy after that. But that's a different story. So we decided, let's go into this, this custard place, and, and it'll, it'll put a cherry on the top of the Sunday of the evening. It'll make everything better. So we walk into this custard place in, in Seattle. I walk in, and, and the kid's behind the counter. I walk in, I said, Sarah, I said, I would like a scoop of chocolate custard. Ice cream's good, but custard's just richer and better. I don't know if they put goodness in it. Love, I don't know what it is. And the guy looked at me. He had like a little hair thing on. He was wearing a hat. It was like 98 degrees, still wearing a tassel cap. And he says, sir, we, we were out of chocolate custard. I don't know. He goes, can I interest you in a vegan chocolate custard? And I went, I said, you, you just shut your face. I will call the police. You shut your face. No, I do not want a vegan. Now, you may like the vegan. That's fine. Custard and vegan, it's like, no, they're different. So, you know, I, after Robin calmed me down, she said, he said, well, we have vanilla. Would you like vanilla? I said, I, I, I would like vanilla. Vanilla's fine. I'll take vanilla. So he gave me these big cups, except the custard was that big. I don't know why. And then he had some Oreos in the back. He said, you just throw an Oreo in there. I'll take that too. And then he goes, here, he goes, he goes, we also, we ran out of spoons. He says, so here's a couple forks. Enjoy your white, terrible custard. And just hand it to us. And that was, I, and I made a vow that day. I said, I'm never coming back to Seattle to have custard. This, is, this place is dead to me. <laughs> imitation. We settle for imitation a lot, beloved. Even when it comes to our faith sometimes. Don't settle for less. Don't live your life lesser. Jesus told us greater things will you do. How about we live in the greater instead of living in the lesser? Are you with me? So Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam. The result is they're aware of their nakedness. They're aware of their sin. They miss the mark. And God kicks them out of the garden. And their disobedience didn't just affect them. Their disobedience caused a ripple effect of sin and death that stretched beyond themselves and still affects us to this day. Thousands and thousands of years later. And humanity from that moment until Jesus lived under the weight of death. The rule of death. Until Jesus came along and he defeated it. Let me read that verse again, Romans 5.17, the one that we started with. Listen to the words now after you have context. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, the rule of death over us has been broken. For those that believe, it's been broken. And you and I can face death fearlessly. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing is this. Not only is death not the final thing now, Death for us now because of Jesus has become the door to eternal life. It's the rite of passage. It's the pathway to get to where we belong for what God created us to be. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians real quick, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. 
It says this. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Did you see that? Let me read it one more time. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. You see, beloved, it's not God's heart that you just don't live and you're not afraid of death. Through Jesus, he offers us just not a fearless death, but he offers us eternal life, abundant life, life beyond anything we could ever dream from. All that comes from God. John 14, 6, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you want to experience real life, it only comes in Jesus. He came to give us life and to give us victory over death. Now, there's a great story of Jesus going toe-to-toe with death uh, that I think just, it just, it inspires me. It's one of my most favorite stories in the Bible. Let me set it up. Sometimes we forget this. When Jesus was on the planet, when he was ministering, he didn't just kind of roll in like the circus, do his thing and roll out. He created relationships. He loved people. He spent time with people. Man, the little kids, he said, don't keep the kids away. I want to see, I want to see them. I want to talk to them. And he built this, these connectional bonds with people. One of the beautiful relationships that he had in the Bible that we know about is with this, this guy named Lazarus. He knew his, his, his sisters, Mary and Martha, and he loved them, and he got connected with them, and it was beautiful. So Jesus is out doing his ministry thing, and, and Lazarus, during this time, he gets sick, and it's, it's bad sick. Now, back in Jesus' day, they didn't have the stuff that we have. They couldn't go to, you know, Christianic care. You know, couldn't go to the CVS, the Walgreens, to get what you need. You either recovered or you died. If you couldn't, you know, recover with their limited stuff or your natural ability, you just died. So Mary and Martha had been around death long enough to know that Lazarus was in bad shape and they needed help beyond themselves. So they sent word to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. We know you guys are, are, are BFFs. So can you get here real quick? So, you know, we know that you pray for people who are sick and everything will be fine. Just get here real quick. So they send word to him, give him plenty of time to get to where he needs to go. And Jesus does this crazy thing. He basically ignores them. Talks to the disciples about stuff and even lets him in on, on the thing, saying, hey, you know, Lazarus, he's, he's sick. In fact, he said this. He says, our brother Lazarus, he's asleep. And sometimes, you know, the disciples were a little bit on the dense side. So they said, well, if he's just asleep, just wake him up. And he said, no, 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 boys, he's dead. Oive, he's dead. Just look at him. He's dead. He said, but his, this won't end in death. This thing won't end in death. So he makes his way to where Lazarus is. This is John 14 or John 11, 17. It says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. What is she saying? Martha is expressing her disappointment in God. Have you ever not understood God's plan for your life, maybe God's unfolding in the lives of others. The test of your faith is not when things are going great. The test of our faith is when things happen that you don't expect, do you still follow? 
do you still believe? That's the test of our faith. Verse 21. Verse 22. Right, let's go from 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24. Yes, Martha said. He'll rise uh, when everyone else rises in the last day. What was, what was she doing? Martha was, was trying to Okay, God, I understand the big picture, and I, you know, you're right, in the big picture, everything's going to be fine, and I get all that. But Jesus corrects her. Look at verse 25. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Then he looks at her, and he says this to Martha. Do you believe this, Martha? Verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Verse 28, then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Verse 30, Jesus had stayed outside the village at a place where Martha had met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave hastily, she assumed that she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Now, the Bible tells us this. You can be angry and sin not. Why was Jesus angry? You know why he was angry? His creation was never designed to experience death. That wasn't the plan. The Bible tells us. Jesus, when he made us, when he formed us, when he created the cosmos, this was not in the original plan. This pain, this suffering, this grief. And one of the things for Jesus, you know, to come and to be with us, to live like us, to die like us, to suck our air, to have our emotions, he was feeling the full weight of what it means for us to face death and to see the ripples that it brings with it. Because how many of you know death doesn't just affect the person that dies? It affects all of us. Verse 34. Where have you put him, he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then you have the smallest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Now, do you ever think of this? I'm a question asker. Why would Jesus cry even though that he knew he was going to raise him from the dead? Lazarus was coming back. It wasn't like, you know, goodbye forever. It was until we meet again. Why did he cry? To remind us. Humanity. Those emotions, those things. They're not just something that we carry. They're something that he, that he carries those too. He understands what loss is. And his human part grieved goodbye. Verse 36. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind, a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Don't you love humanity? I'm glad I'm not God. I say, you know what, boys? I'm done. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Right? Verse 38. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Can you, can you picture him? In your, I mean, I, oh, here we go. I'm done. Death, you're done. The grave, you're done. Can you see? He was angry. Why? I mean, it's just it's incredible to me. 
Uh, he was angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone was rolled across his entrance. Verse 39, roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all the people that are standing here. So they'll also believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were bound in, uh, bound in grave cloths. His face is wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. It was pretty important that Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Do you know why? If he wouldn't have used the word Lazarus, everybody in that cemetery would have came out. How many of you have ever seen the video for Thriller? Bum, 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 bum. Ah, like a biblical thriller, right? That's the way this works. When God speaks, his creation responds. That's authority. He carries authority. Now, here's the beautiful thing about that connection. Do you know that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus died? He died again. He did. But do you know that his death wasn't final? It wasn't. His death was a doorway. It was a passage. Why? Jesus made a way. He made a way for Lazarus to live forever. He made a way for you and I to live forever. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He came back so that we could go back with him. And what he did for Lazarus and what he did because of the, the path that he blazed, he made a path for us to follow as well. He made it so for us, death is no longer final. It's a door. But there's a catch. Here's the catch. Do you believe? You have to believe. Do you really believe? It's not about the church or the denomination. It's not about your grandma, even though she's awesome. It's about you. Your heart and what you believe. Only you can answer the question for yourself. Do you know one of the ways you can tell if you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God in your life, and if you believe this stuff, one of the ways you can tell is by how you respond to death. If death breaks you down and puts you in the dirt, there's something in you that's broken that doesn't trust God. There's something in you you're like, man, I, I don't know if this goes all into me. And, and, and don't get me wrong, God doesn't turn you away. But again, it's a way for us to figure out where, where the leak in the system is. As believers, we don't fear death. We face death. And you never face it alone. We face it hand in hand with God. Your level of fear dictates really what you believe. John 5.24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. God is here to give you everything you need to be able to face death fearlessly. What does he give you? What's the greatest gift he gives us? You know what it is? Himself. You never face death alone. So here's the question. Do you believe? Do you know him? I'm going to ask you the same question, Father George. asked my Godfather, George, gosh, 40 years ago now. George, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? 
If you know Jesus, you can face death confidently. Bow your heads with me. I want you to have a conversation right now with God. You know God hears you when you speak. The same Holy Spirit that speaks to me speaks to you. The same Holy Spirit, God, that hears me, hears you. I want to ask you this question. I want you to ask this to God. Say, God, do I really believe? Do I have a faith for myself? Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the bedrock of our salvation. Do you believe? Do you know him? Thanks for listening to the Trinity Community Church Podcast. We hope this met you exactly where you are. To learn more about us, head to our website at tccde.com or follow us on social media at Trinity Community Church. TCC, a home for you.